0: All right, I'm gonna make an assumption which I realize is very dangerous but I think almost all people that have ever lived would agree with the statement I'm getting ready to say in almost all cases knowing is better than not knowing no yes most people would agree with knowing is better than not knowing Now, I know there are some cases where maybe that's not the case when you were in middle school you played a lot of what if games and people would always get to well, what if you could know the exact day you're gonna die would you wanna know that Maybe, maybe not. I could see why somebody would say no to that. I would say yes. <laughs> I want to know that. If you can tell me and you're definitely right, I want to know. I understand that there are some exceptions, but most cases, I think most people would say, knowing is better than not knowing. There's a reason why Miss Cleo was famous. There is a reason why astrology and horoscopes still exist. There's a reason why less than five miles from here you can go get your tarot cards read whatever those are, okay? I don't know what they are, they're supposed to tell you something, but most people want to know so bad that even the illusion of someone maybe telling them something that's true works for them and they buy into it. Knowing is almost always better than not knowing. Every male driver and probably some female drivers in here are going to agree with this next analogy. So I go to to BAC on Scottsville Road in the mornings. When I'm going home, I have to cross by stake and Shake, cross back over Scottsville Road. That light is always red because the main traffic is going this way and I'm trying to cross it. What I've realized though is if I take a right, I can go down very short, take a left little back street, cross over. I'm not even positive it's not illegal, but there's no signs, so I'm going to ask for grace if I ever get stopped. So you cross the street. Sometimes, though, I make the U-turn, and I look back and I realize it would have been quicker had I just sat at the red light. However, that does not make me mad. A little bit, but not really. Why? Knowing is better than not knowing. I know how long it takes me to make that U-turn. I do not know how long I may have to sit at that red light. I would rather keep moving and be in control of my fate be in control of the time it takes me, even if I realize I just wasted a few seconds, because knowing is better than not knowing. If you agree with that statement, that knowing is better than not knowing, you may be in the wrong place today. We may be looking at the wrong scriptures for you today, because there is mystery built in here. But I think Jesus is saying some extremely powerful things. I think Jesus is saying some incredibly needed things for us to be reminded of. We desperately need to remember some of these things. However, I do not in any way think he intended to give us or his disciples he was speaking to timelines or charts or graphs or when this happens, tomorrow I'm coming. I don't think that is his intention here. Now we will discuss some of the specifics and we'll definitely discuss some more of the specifics next week. But I don't think that's the reason Matthew 24 is included here. To give us timelines and help us with date setting and help us to look forward to the exact day that Jesus is coming back. But I do think that there is much to be said here that we must remember. But first, we have to look at what is being said, what does the scripture specifically say? And then I think it will be clear what those bigger picture items are. So as the chapter opens, you see the disciples are in awe, right? They've they've probably never been to the temple like they have right now, where Jesus is is taking them. They are in awe. It says specifically that they came up to Jesus to tell him, Look at these buildings. This is a bunch of country bumpkins that were fishing not too long ago. They are now seeing the greatest spectacle maybe the world has ever seen. Because how they got 20-ton pieces of rock moved back then with no cranes and no tractors and no, I, I have no idea other than God is just moving. I don't know how that worked, but back then they absolutely would have been awestruck. I grew up on a farm in a town. I, I looked at the census of 236 people, big city. So I grew up in Nebo, Kentucky, in case anybody cares about the name. Last December, my wife and I went to New York City. To say that I was awestruck would be an understatement. We got up on top of one of the tallest buildings, the Empire State Building, and it looked like New York went on forever. Like, literally didn't stop. It's just, apparently New York is the entire world, even when you're that far up. It is huge. I was in awe. It is into, I can't even describe to you how big it is if you haven't been there. It is huge. This is what the disciples were doing. They were going through culture shock. They were, they were coming to Jesus to point out that this is what we do when we go to places. Hey, do you, do you see this? Do you see what I'm seeing? Can you see that? Can you see this view? Come over here. It's better at this angle. All this, this is what we do when we're in a new place, when we're a place that we're impressed by, when we're in a place that we have never been before. And this is what the disciples we're doing. But Jesus' response was not, oh, I do see it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, look how cool that is. Oh, man, you're right. He says, yeah, you see that? Not too long from now, it's all going away. It's not one stone will be left on top of another. It's going to come crashing down. So he says these things, and then Scripture just moves on. They probably left because here here's where we uh, get to what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse because he was on the Mount of Olives which is outside of the city so there was some walking that was done in between that specific statement and this time but you can clearly see that the disciples are asking him a twofold question here when you read it it seems like it may be a threefold question and yet we have to know exactly what they're saying first they're asking him When is this destruction of the temple you just told us about going to happen? So that is a very specific instance. Then the next part of the question, it says, When will Jesus come back and the end of the age? They viewed that as one event. Jesus returning and the end of the age, simultaneous event. So it is a two-fold question, a two-prophecy question. Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. Jesus has told them from a long time ago that he is coming back. So that, from that question, from those two questions, we see Jesus make some bold and somewhat surprising predictions. As we work through these, I want us to pay especially close attention to make sure that we can identify when he is talking about each one. There are sometimes he is talking about only the destruction of the temple. There are sometimes he is talking about only the end of the world. There are sometimes where he's kind of talking about both together. But we need to make sure we use context clues to know which. Is which. So, first we see here in verses 4 through 14, Jesus is telling his disciples what to look for in general. He tells them some of the things that will and won't be true as they are traversing through these next however long. He doesn't give a timeline. Again, remember, he's not giving dates here, he's saying this is coming. So all of these things in verses 4 through 14 can really fit into four broad categories. And we need to remember these four broad categories. So if you are taking notes, you may want to write these down. Because we'll come back to them in a little bit. But we see deception. He mentions that people will come claiming to be Christ, saying, I am he, I am the one, I have come back. False teachers, false prophets. So there will be deception. We see tribulation, that's wars, famines, earthquakes, things that are not really in our control that just happen, but do have an effect on us as human beings. So deception, tribulation, we see persecution. Believers will be delivered over in order to be put to death and tortured and persecuted for Jesus' name's sake. So deception, tribulation, persecution, and then lastly we see temptation. Many will be led astray. Many will renounce their faith. Many who we thought were absolutely in the camp of, sou- of saved people and believers and faithful members prove that they're not, and they walk away. And you will be tempted to do that too. And Jesus says, don't be among them. It will be easier to renounce your faith, but it will not be worth it. So we, deception, tribulation, persecution, and temptation. Now here's where I will ask you a question. What parts of this sounds like 2017? Wars, famines, false prophets, persecution of believers, earthquakes. Literally every one of those has happened in the last 12 months, multiple times. Christians are being martyred at alarming rates right now in the world. People are dying of hunger all over the world, even though there's, I'm convinced, enough food for everyone people are dying they don't have clean water again, convinced there's enough of that there are wars all over the globe with no end to those in sight so are we living in the last days because all of these things are happening possibly that's my answer possibly not is also my answer I don't know What I can tell you, though, is if I asked these questions in 1980, everyone in the congregation would have been nodding their heads saying, yeah, that's happening, yeah, there's people dying, yeah, there's famines, yes, there's wars. If I asked in 1970, same answer, 60, same answer. People have been predicting the end of the world for a long time because of these things. Well, all of these things are happening, it must be that we're in the last days. What I can assure you of is we are one day closer today than we were yesterday to Jesus' return. We're 100 years closer today than we were 100 years ago, and so on and so forth. We are getting there, but I do not know how long that will take. But look at the warning he gives in verse 6. For all of the the sky is falling people, and Jesus is coming back tomorrow people, what does he say in verse 6? He tells them, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. He reminds them that He is in charge of all of these things. He reminds them that He is in control of wars and famines and persecutions and tribulations and deceptions and temptations. He is in control of those things. And the temple has to be destroyed. All of these things that have to happen that we are going to discuss today. But He is foreshadowing, or saying that these are the foreshadowing, the birth pains, the beginning of these things. He does not say how long they will last. You can clearly tell that Jesus is not remotely concerned about dates and predictions and timelines here. He's telling them, don't be alarmed. Some of this stuff looks really, really bad. Don't be alarmed. Remember who your faith is in. Remember who is in control of these things. Okay, that was verses 4 through 14. Now we move on to verses 15 through 28. This is where Jesus is specifically talking about the destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. He tells them that when you begin to see the foreign armies gather up like was prophesied hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Daniel, this is when you'll know this is about to happen. He calls it the abomination of desolation. Not going to go into exactly what all of that means because we simply just don't have time. There are a few places, though, in Daniel that Matthew may be referring to here that are specifically and prophetically talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and how that's going to look and who's going to do it and all those things. If you're a note taker, Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11 are the specific references of Jerusalem being destroyed, being trampled underfoot. That's a quote. Regular sacrifices being stopped. Also a quote. The ruler from the north gathering his armies to attack the city. That is a quote. This is what is going to happen and it is definitely talking about Jerusalem. There is no debate. No theologian on the planet doesn't think that Daniel was talking about this moment. These prophecies would have been well known to the disciples. They would have read them many times. Lots of Jewish people would have read these many times. The catch though is they thought it had already happened. Around 167 BC, a guy that I can't pronounce his name and no one's going to care anyway, but a dude came in and he, he took over the temple, took control of the temple He knocked down the altar of Yahweh and put in an altar of Zeus. And then he decreed that pigs be sacrificed to Zeus on the altar. Now, pigs, if you remember, thank you for the new covenant and bacon, Jesus, are the unclean of the unclean animals, right? So this could not have been more insulting to the Jewish people for the temple to not only not be in their control anymore, but now who is controlling it is taking the most unclean thing they can think of and sacrificing it to a different God in their temple. So a lot of people say that that is when the abomination that leads to desolation occurred. So they'd already chalked it up to already happening. But Jesus is letting them know that, again, that's just foreshadowing something much worse is going to happen. At least the temple was still standing after that guy got done with it. But the abomination that leads to desolation will destroy the temple. And Daniel, Daniel speaks of this, but it has not yet occurred, so be continually on the lookout for it. So he tells them what to look for, and he says when the foreign armies surround the city, those of you who are in Judea, which Judea is the country Jerusalem is in, so Jerusalem is kind of in the center, of the capital city, flee to the mountains, flee away from the city. Now this would have been completely counterintuitive to people back then. When armies start attacking, and they start, I guess, coming across the land, and you see that coming, the normal thing you would do is get inside the most fortified city you can get in. The highest walls you can find, get behind those. And this would have absolutely been Jerusalem. So what they would have thought to do if Jesus had not warned them was go to Jerusalem. Be in Jerusalem. Be near the temple. Be near the safety of the city. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. My divine wrath is coming against that city. And you don't want to be a part of that because everyone that is found in there is going to face my divine wrath. So quickly leave, flee. Go somewhere else. Go anywhere else. Don't go get your cloak. Don't go get your stuff. If you're pregnant, Just bring your kid with you and let's go. Or if you're pregnant or nursing, then we just got to go. It is estimated that 1.1 million people died during the siege of Jerusalem here because it was God's divine wrath for them turning their back on him and not worshiping him the way that they were instructed to do so. And he is telling if you're a true believer, instead of going to the temple, go away from the temple. He tells them to watch out for the reports that Jesus has returned and no one seems to know. says, if someone says he's out in the wilderness, don't go look for him because he ain't out there. What he's saying, he makes it very clear that no one is going to miss this event. <laughs> when Jesus does return, no one's going to be looking around going, what? Did something happen? You know, when your power flickers off and you're like, Did... you saw that, right? That's not how this event's going to be. This event is going to be worldwide. No one will be left behind wondering what happened. There will not be chariots with bumper stickers telling you what happened when the rapture came and that this chariot's going to be unmanned and you're going to wreck your chariot. It's not going to happen. People are going to know what happened. It's one of the many places that people can and do disagree about the details here, though. Will there be a rapture? Will there not be a rapture? How many years will the tribulation last? What exactly does he mean by the tribulation? Does he just mean the siege of Jerusalem? Or does he mean a long time where tribulation just keeps abounding? told you we're not going to get a lot of detailed answers here. There are true Christians on both sides of everything that I just named. And I'm not saying that those things are not important. And we may discuss some of those details next week. But at this point, we do know two very important things that there is no debate about. One, Jerusalem is going down, and it is going down all the way. Not one stone will be left on top of it. The temple will be destroyed. Two, Jesus is coming back. He is returning, and He is going to bring His people with Him to heaven when He does. These are two ironclad, not debatable things found in this scripture. Now, verses 29 through 31, Jesus begins discussing the, prophe- the second prophecy that the disciples asked about. They asked about the destruction of the temple. He's addressed that. They asked about, okay, well, when are you coming back? And when are you going to end the age? And this is what he says in return, er, to, for that. He says, after the fall of Jerusalem, there will be a time of tribulation. Daniel told you it was coming. This is where you will begin to see the famines and the wars and the persecutions multiply. I warned you about these. Don't be alarmed. They've got to happen. Now, after that time of tribulation, of which, again, not everyone agrees on the length of time. So we may still be in it. We may not be. Everybody get how confused we can be when we try to get to the details right but he's saying after that time there will be a major sign that Jesus has come back there's a major sign as to why you don't go out in the wilderness because someone claims that he came back secretly and he's gathering his people in secret like a CIA agent why because the skies will rip open and upon the clouds Jesus will come down and the world will see this he will come in great power. He will come in great glory. And when he does, what does it say? All the tribes on the earth will mourn. This is in verse 30. Why will there be such mourning when the world sees Jesus come down on the clouds? Because it will be in that moment when they realize it is too late. It is in that moment that they will realize that they should have been prepared for this moment. It is in that moment while their knees are bowing and their tongues are confessing, the very tongues they use to deny Jesus their whole lives is confessing that Jesus is Lord. They realize that Jesus is, in fact, the sovereign God and King, but they will have no, long, no longer have time to repent. They will have n- no more time to turn back to Him and to say, I'm sorry, I should have known better. There will be great mourning on that day. And then Jesus will gather the people that are rejoicing when they see this same event from all tribes, from all tongues, from all nations. And Jesus will take them and consummate his kingdom that he has promised us from the beginning. And he will take us, his children, his true believers with us, with him. And he then uses the fig tree as another object lesson. And he says, in the same way we use the leaves on the fig tree. So when you see a fig tree acting a certain way, you know summer is coming. And he's saying... Look to these things so you will be ready for his return. Now again, this doesn't mean specific day. Okay, I'm ready for his return. Tomorrow. This means to be continually ready. The fig tree does this every year. Some of these things may happen over and over again. We're going to see more wars. We're going to see more famines. We're going to see more persecutions. We're going to see more tribulation. It doesn't always mean Jesus is coming tomorrow. It might. He may be back before I finish my next sentence. I don't know. But he's saying, just be ready. So I have to ask you, is when I say today could be the day that Jesus splits open the skies and comes in to set up his permanent kingdom, what does your heart do in that moment? Does it sink because you're not sure what that means for you? Is your answer to, are you ready for that moment? I hope so. Or does your soul leap for joy? Because today might be the day you get to meet Jesus face to face, and you know that that is what your heart and your soul longs for. Only you can answer that for you. But if you are even slightly apprehensive about it, or if you are slightly unsure, and your answer is, I hope, I invite you to repent. I invite you to turn to Jesus. I invite you to admit you're a sinner. I invite you to pray to God right now in this moment, silently in your chair, that Jesus would save you. Because the truth of the matter is today could be the day. Christians, if your answer was not apprehensive and you are leaping for joy inside of you, may we long for with great anticipation for this day. Because it is on this day that all of those things, the tribulation, the persecution, the temptation, the deception, will be set right. And we won't have to go through the time of tribulation anymore. We won't have to go through wars and famines anymore. He will set this world right. All of the things we saw in verse 4-14 through will be put to an end. May we eagerly await this day with great longing and great joy. May you pray today that today is the day. And then Jesus, at the very end of this section, says this is probably the most controversial line in this whole section of Scripture. And it's it's probably up there, most controversial lines in all of Scripture, because there's so much debate about it. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay, what do you mean? There is debate by exactly what this generation means. Could it mean that the the shared heritage of the Israelites? So the Jewish people will always be a Jewish people until Jesus returns. Maybe. Does it mean the people he is talking to right then and there? Possibly. Does it mean all believers because they share the commonality of faith in Christ? So his people will always be a generation of people. Maybe. This debate has raged for centuries and I am not going to solve that today. I invite you to dive into scripture and see what it says. There is debate about what he means by all these things. Does he mean literally every single thing that he just said in all of these verses preceding? Possibly. Does he mean the resurrection? Maybe. Does he mean only the destruction of Jerusalem? Maybe. Does he mean the calamities he listed in verses 4 through 14? So will there always be this tribulation, this persecution, this deception, this temptation? This debate has raged for centuries. I am not going to solve that today. I invite you, again, to look at Scripture, pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate it, and then let's wrestle through it together. And let's see what he's saying. It would be arrogant of me to act as if I am the end-all and be-all for what Jesus is saying. Now, I have my leanings, and I can tell you what I do think. I'm not going to preaching. But please come talk to me. I have studied this more this week than I have my entire life because I've always just chalked it up to Jesus coming back whenever he wants. Uh, which is pretty much where I still land. But I do have my leanings on some of these details, and I will be glad to discuss them with you. And I will be glad if you disagree with me, let's wrestle through it together. You may prove me wrong, and that's okay. One of the smartest men I know, I won't name his name, y'all all all know him, disagrees with me on a lot of these details, and I couldn't respect him more. I had a conversation with him yesterday about it. Couldn't respect his opinion more. And when I talk to him, he pretty much convinces me. And then when I talk to somebody on the other side, I go, yeah, no, I see that too. I don't know all the details. And I don't think Jesus is wanting us to know every last detail. What I can say is that we know for certain is that he is not telling his disciples that his ultimate return will happen before they die. We do know that. Because that would make him a liar because he hasn't returned yet and they are all dead. And then he wouldn't be worthy of worship anymore. So we can chalk up that that is not what he's saying. He's not come back for his believers yet. So, what do we know? And this is where I think we get to the weightier issues that Jesus is really trying to say here. See, these are things that I think we can know for absolute certain that will guide us today, tomorrow, 100 years from now. First, we see that the things of this world are passing, they are temporary. I'm not saying they don't matter, but they matter a lot less than we act like they do. Jesus was less than impressed by the beautiful buildings and the beautiful temple that was made in his honor. The temple was God's building, and he wasn't that impressed by it. We see other scriptures where he tells us not to lay up our treasures here on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but lay up our treasures in heaven where nothing can destroy or take them from us. Jesus is very clear We do not have time to immerse ourselves in trivial, nonsensical matters, including but not limited to the details of the day he is going to return. But he's also talking about our jobs and our houses and our careers and our wants and our desires and our stuff. The things of this world will not last. Do not build your life on them. Do not bank your eternity on your bank. Okay? It's all going away. We know He will return. We know all of the things that we hold so tightly to will be gone. Heaven and earth will pass away. See that in verse 36, 35. sorry. But He tells us that His words will still be standing. His life will still matter 10 million years from now. His death will still matter 10 million years from now. His resurrection will still matter 10 million years from now. Your car will not. Your house will not. This world is passing. It is fleeting. It is a bud of vapor. Do not bank your eternity on it. Secondly, we can know for certain that Jesus has ultimate authority. His words do not fail. He tells his disciples very clearly that the temple will be utterly and totally destroyed and that it wouldn't even be too long from now. Forty years later, we see exactly what he said would happen happens. The Roman army under the command of Titus, not the one in Scripture, different guy, comes in, utterly destroys the temple. You can still go to see the remains of that temple right now, and it still hasn't been rebuilt. This means when he makes a promise, it comes true. That means when he promises that he will return to take his elect from all the corners of the world, to be with him forever, we can believe that he will. He's kept all these other promises. He'll keep that one as well. means when he says that he will be with us until the very end of the age, like we see in Matthew 28, we can believe him. He will be with us. He will empower us. He will strengthen us. He has ultimate authority over famines, over wars, over tribulation, over persecution, over temptation, over everything, so we can stand firm in our faith because we know that Jesus has ultimate authority. So what is our response to these first two truths? He tells us specifically in verse 13. He says, Stand firm to the end so that you can be saved. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Stand firm under the umbrella of His authority. Stand firm in His strength. Stand firm in His power. Stand firm that His words will remain until the end. And He tells us that if we belong to the Father, that no one will snatch us out of His hand. We will make it to the end. So do not be alarmed. Do not fret like the rest of the world does. Do not concern your things with these trivial passing matters, but stand firm, persevere in the power of the promised Holy Spirit, because he has promised us by a completely and ultimately authoritative Christ that he will be with us. We must persevere until the end, whether that means the end of our lives or whether that means Jesus comes back while we are still alive in the midst of all of these promised tribulations, in the midst of the persecutions, in the midst of all of these things, stand firm. So when you are faced with tragedy, when you are faced with cancer, when you are faced with death, when you are faced with things that are less than enjoyable, stand firm. We do not lose heart because Jesus has ultimate authority. Thirdly, what we know is that He has not yet returned to gather His children. We know that He is still waiting to return. We know that He will because of the first two truths. He has told us that He will, and He has not yet come. The one thing we know for sure about when He will return. So all of these other things can be debatable. Is this the tribulation? Possibly. Is this the the famine of all famines that... Brings about his return? Maybe. Is this the war that does it? Maybe. But he tells us very specifically in verse 14 what will predate his return. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Here's what we know for sure about when he will return. When the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. We know this task will not be easy. We know specifically from this chapter that kingdom proclamation brings about persecution because it says we will be persecuted for His namesake, not because we're jerks or not because we're awesome, for His namesake. Too many times to mention in Scripture we are warned that becoming a Christian will make life harder and more difficult and more dangerous. It will not be an easy ride, but it is promised to be worth it. We also know So kingdom proclamation brings about persecution. We also know, as David Platt puts it, based on verse 14, kingdom proclamation brings about kingdom consummation. We want Jesus to return and set up His his final kingdom. Proclaim the gospel. If you truly long for the day that Christ will come to be hastened upon us, to be here as quickly as possible, share the gospel. Tell someone about this Jesus so that they will then join the disciples and go out and do the very same thing. This will happen. Then the end will come. Another thing that we know, on the flip side of that exact same coin, is that preaching a half-hearted gospel I come to Jesus to make your life easier gospel a prosperity gospel a gospel that does not include deception does not include temptation that does not include persecution and that does not include tribulation will not create disciples that will persevere until the end because they won't be ready and they will be alarmed at these things they will say things like I thought this was supposed to make life easier why didn't you tell me that this is what it meant preaching a half hearted gospel will not prepare them for what is to come. We must teach and learn ourselves to truly treasure Christ over all of the things this world has to offer. That is the only thing that is going to make anyone persevere to the end if they truly treasure Christ above all things. Because when all other things are taken from them, they will still have Christ. If we are preaching to our kids, to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers, or anyone that will listen a half gospel, then we are preaching to them no gospel at all. Just keep your mouth shut if you're only going to preach a half gospel. You see, if Jesus' words are true, and we know that they are, then we can expect this cycle to continue. Follow me through this progression. The more we share the true gospel, the more people will believe. We know this because Isaiah tells us God's words will not come back void. Romans 1 tells us that the gospel is the power of God until salvation. So the more we preach the gospel, the more people will be saved. The more people that are truly saved, the more they will face the same persecutions we see promised here in Matthew chapter 14. John 16, 33 says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the more people who believe the gospel, the more they will be persecuted for it. The more people who are persecuted for their faith, the more Jesus is proven right. The more he has authority because he said, guess what? These things are going to happen. Because of his promises are coming true, the more real he becomes. Philippians 1, we suffer for his sake. Acts chapter 5, they rejoiced because they were worthy to suffer for his name's sake. That is not a natural reaction for anyone. That is how we know Jesus is real because that is how they reacted. The more his promises are shown to be true, the more we can rest on his authority and persevere because we know he keeps his promises. The more we rest solely on the power and authority of his promises, the more we boldly share the gospel. And then we're back at the beginning of that, that cycle. That's multiplication. Preach the gospel. Jesus is proven right. We preach, because he's proven right, we boldly preach the gospel back again, back again, back again. The problem is not that we don't know when he is coming back. The problem is too many times we live like he isn't coming back. We, we're not sharing the message that will hasten his return to save people and we're not sharing the message that will save people upon his return. We must preach the gospel. We simply live our lives going with the flow. If someone asks us about Jesus, we'll We'll talk to them. But we're not bringing it up enough or we're not focusing on sharing the gospel today. We spend our time debating silliness about what day it's going to be and we're once again missing the point and I'm preaching to myself. I get wrapped up in my day. I get wrapped up in the things that I have to get done. And I'm not preaching the gospel. Or we're preaching a half gospel which we... No, is no gospel at all. David Platt says it this way. We have taken the gospel, the very lifeblood of Christianity, and we have put Kool-Aid in its place trying to get more people to taste it. We must know the message we are commissioned to preach to the world. Now this may ring true for some more than others. A pastor friend shared this analogy with me a few weeks ago and it, it rings true. How many in here can speak more than one language? Not many. <laughs> Didn't think so. I can't speak any French took four years of it it's gone I don't know where it went besides the fact that I didn't take the class very seriously but i I can still pick up on a few words as I hear French people talking which never happens I don't run into a lot of French people but I can from context clues kinda go they're talking about this topic they're talking about this topic I am far from fluent but I can be made up word here, translative I can kind of tell you a few things they might be saying this is what we do with the gospel we're not fluent in the gospel we are simply translative in the gospel, we kind of know what it says we kind of know what it means, we kind of preach it but some of it's really offensive, people are going to hell I'm not going to preach that part it's going to lead to persecution, I don't want to mention that to somebody. That might steer them away. It might turn them from truly believing. And one, you're putting the focus on yourself and how well you present it. And two, you're, putting, you're taking Christ's blood and turning it into Kool-Aid hoping if I put a little dab of sugar in it, it'll taste better to the culture. It'll be more palatable to the culture. A half gospel, a false gospel, and definitely no gospel at all is not going to get the job done in proclaiming this message to the world and bringing about Jesus' return. Only the true offensive to those who do not believe gospel is what will bring Jesus back. But it is also the only true message that will differentiate those who will be weeping when he returns from those who will be rejoicing when he returns. It is that message alone. You see, Jesus was not trying to give the disciples a timeline or a chart or a graph or tools to figure out when he was coming back. He was trying to encourage them that until he comes back, there is work to be done. He was instructing them to pay attention to what is really important. What is really important is the salvation found in his gospel. We must be gospel fluent. We must be boldly gospel fluent. We must be incessantly gospel fluent. So if you came in here today expecting to hear a message telling you when Jesus was going to come back, sorry, not sorry, because I don't know. What I do know is there is work to be done, and until that work is done, he ain't coming back. So how do we know when that work is done? One of my favorite quotes of, of all time, George E. Ladd. I'm just going to read it. He says this, I answer, I do not know. God alone knows the definition of the terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are. Only God knows exactly the meaning of evangelize. He alone, who has told us that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations, will know when that objective has been accomplished. But I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms of our task. Our responsibility is to complete it. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. I cannot improve upon that. We do not have time not to carry out the Great Commission because we do not know how much time we have left. So I implore you, I implore myself, I implore us as Mission Church, let us get busy completing our mission to the ends of the earth, to the ends of our street. May we be bold, may we be fluent in the gospel. That is what is important. Let's pray.